I think that people who want to see and shape the future, they are well advised to look at a world that is a bit of both. Uh, again, it was something that we discussed today. Um, I've coined this word which helps me to understand the, this, the, what we're talking about, which is on life. And it's not a, not a misspelled online or offline, it's just a single word. And on life to me means exactly this seamless uh, experience that we have. I might be checking my mobile phone now to see what the flight is, uh, is delayed or not, and then put it back. At what point I was online and at what point I was offline? Silly question, no longer um, available. The same happens in the kitchen. I mean, if I start talking to Alexa and asking for a recipe, not, no longer an adequate question for our time. In this episode, we have the honor to welcome Luciano Floridi. Luciano, you are a professor in the Digital Ethics Lab at the University of Oxford and one of the leading voices in the global discourse when it comes to ethics and the digital future. It's nice to have you on this episode. Thank you for having me. Next to me, there is Edith Schmid joining this episode as well. Edith is a contributor to Dezentrum and a PhD candidate in applied philosophy at ETH. So a perfect fit for the topic about ethics we'd like to discuss with you today. Thanks, Edith, for joining as well. Thank you. So, Luciano, the word digitalization is kind of a buzzword in public discourse and is now discussed a lot. It seems that we are at a point where our society transforms to a new age. I imagine that one day people do not talk about digitalization as a transforming process anymore because it simply feels natural living in a digital environment. Society is already digitalized. How will such a fully digitalized society look like? You're right. I think that um, uh, we still talk about things like emerging media, new technologies, digitalization, as if this were something new. I fear that um, the people talking their way sometimes have more my age than uh, younger, people in their 50s who still feel that this is coming, that this is happening. The truth is that uh, with the advantage of being uh, an old professor in, uh, in a context where you always meet new people, which of course at the university they're always young, uh, you can keep an eye on how things are changing and therefore soon realize that the transformation of a fully analog world into a world that is increasingly digital has happened. It's already with us. Uh, it is extraordinary to think that uh, this is given sometimes in some context as a novelty, something that we need to discover. A few facts are quite obvious. I mean, uh, people in my classroom this year uh, will have never seen a world without Wikipedia, uh, Facebook, Google, Amazon, uh, smart uh, phones, uh, touch screens, and you can keep going. So what is the implication here? I think the first point, the starting point, is that it has happened. It is still happening. It's almost like, a, like the uh, breaking through of a process. But the very novelty, the very first sort of landing on this new digital planet, well, it's done. So what is also true, however, that is it keeps going and it keeps producing more transformations, more impact. It keeps extending the distance with a fully analog world that increasingly people will have never seen. So at some point, give me a few more decades, when I will be dead and new people will be around, there won't be anyone on this planet which will have seen a world fully analog, full stop. 
At that point, this landing will be complete, so to speak. Until that moment, I like to give this analogy just to make sure that things are kept in, in balance. In the same way as you have a world with and without the wheel, now, someone invented the wheel, and at some point, people no, change their lives. Well, we're still using the wheel in a million ways. And uh, so the impact, so to speak, of the wheel hasn't finished. But there is a world with and a world without. In the same way as people you know, landed on the moon or you know, discovered America, you discover America only once. It doesn't mean that we're not yet not feeling the consequences and so on. So the digital happens once, has happened, and we need to start taking that into account. But I'm not saying, oh, the revolution is over, the transformation is finished. With that in mind, it means that what is really matter seems to be more fundamental. It's not so much emphasizing this, the digital is happening, the digitalization is, is ongoing, but what do we do with it? It was part of the topic for that today we discuss. The governance of this transformation, that seems to me fundamental. So to conclude with the analogy before, we landed on a new planet. What do we want to do with this new planet? That is the question now. Going back to, oh my goodness, we landed on this planet. It's a new planet, it's a new planet. I know. <laughs> what do we want to do with it? That is, to me, the real challenge today. Um, there are some critics saying that the so-called digital industrialization is nothing inherently new compared to, for example, the other ways of industrialization we've witnessed with, for example, mass production and Ford. Um, what is your take on that? Is it, again, us claiming that machines are taking over when in reality they are taking over since 200 years? Yeah, I think that it's important to see continuity and discontinuity all the time. I mean, you can always make an, an argument saying or something completely new, but also go back and say, oh, no, no, look, we've seen this before. You know, I mentioned the wheel and uh, you know, that we've been exploiting the, the wheel forever. I think that, the, in my view, the, the difference with uh, the previous industrial revolution um, is um, more of what had already happened there, meaning the creation of a new environment. In the same way as the old industrial revolution created the urbanization of, of, of cities, the, 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 essentially the end of agriculture as the main industry in a country, it took centuries, but it definitely not led there. Likewise, the digital uh, world is transforming our ways of inhabiting this planet. And one can say, look, we've been doing this forever. True. Or one can say, oh, it's a new chapter. So is it the same book? Yes. Is it a new chapter? Yes. So it depends on what you want to put the emphasis on. I like sometimes to emphasize the new chapter in the old book. And some other times you want to say, look, we're still not the same book after all. We're still no, living in a world that is increasingly industrialized. And now the industrialization is, is digital. In order to tackle the real new challenges, it is important to understand the difference, the novelty. But it's very reasonable to say that there's also a lot of continuity. Nowadays, um, even if we naturally use a lot of technological devices and almost daily connect to the virtual space or to virtual spaces, we tend to draw a sharp distinction between the virtual and artificial, the tangible and real, the digital analog space. Is it conceivable that these two spheres might once meld together so that future society does not substantially differentiate between those spheres and will there be 
one point in time where virtual and the artificial becomes real and vice versa? Oh, I, th I think we're already seeing that. Um, I think in many corners of the more, say, mature information societies, this um, mixing of ingredients is already happening. Um, there's a sense of continuity and no gap for example, in, in job environments where you move from working within a sort of digital virtual environment, a database maybe or something, and then go you know, down for, for a coffee and then back to that particular digital context. But if you think, for example, of areas like banking or the insurance companies, I mean, banking today, is it digital, is it analog? Well, wrong question. I mean, really, is it online, is it online? Well, again, really wrong question. Uh, it's a wrong question because it doesn't have a yes/no answer. It's, it's a bit of both, and sometimes you know more on one, more on the other. Now, taking just banking as an example, um, what the digital has done remarkably, you know, contrary to the analog world, is that it has completely decoupled presence and location. So you can interact at a distance, and therefore you don't have to be there in order to interact there or with the bank. Now that seems to us today totally trivial. Like, thank you so much. Wow, what a discovery! A generation ago, that was science fiction, literally science fiction. So localization of, say, your bodily you know, and presence in terms of where I can interact with what, completely detached. The result is that uh, branches of banking uh, systems are closing down. And what is opening up? Coffee shops, because you need to be there in order to get the coffee. So mix and match, I think that people who want to see and shape the future, they are well advised to look at a world that is a bit of both. Uh, again, it was something that we discussed today. Um, I've coined this word which helps me to understand the, this, the, what we're talking about, which is on life. And it's not a, not a misspelled online or offline. It's just a single word. And on life to me means exactly this seamless uh, experience that we have. I might be checking my mobile phone now to see what the flight is, uh, is delayed or not, and then put it back. At what point I was online and at what point I was offline? Silly question, no longer um, available. The same happens in the kitchen. I mean, if I start talking to Alexa and ask for a recipe, online, offline, no, no longer an adequate question for our time. So I'd say we are there. We are there, and it's a bit of both. And contrary to science fiction scenarios where everything, you know, in a sort of matrix, like everything becomes totally virtual, or you now the analog will prevail, uh, cyber security, cyber war, uh, cyber conflicts, mixed match, is a bit digital, analog, online, offline. The whole sort of uh, cooking happens with all the ingredients. The people, lawmakers, policymakers, politicians, uh, the, the business people, the, the, from the student to the professor, etc., who understand this, they will have the tools at least to start thinking about how to shape it properly. People still think that they are too old, that you go online, you connect. And, they're, they're lost. I mean, uh, that is, uh, as I mentioned often, it's really 90s. I mean, it's no longer adequate. It's interesting you've mentioned uh, science fiction as well as the movie Matrix. Mm -hmm. um, some people do believe in um, a very dystopian future that we will kind of live this panopticum from Foucault or that we will be 1984 slaves. Um, what is your take on it? I mean, you've already mentioned a little bit, but like, do you think there's a scenario where we could actually be just a brain in a tank? I think there is a risk. Um, we'll be a self-inflicted pain. Um, no one is inflicting this 
on us. No gods, no artificial intelligence, no demons, uh, no crazy scientists. It will be humanity uh, and slowly committing one mistake after the other. That's how we got to the concentration camps. It's no one else's responsibility but human responsibility. We have been monsters before. The question is, are we going to be monsters again against ourselves? It's in our DNA. Can we avoid it? Yes, absolutely. Lessons learned. I mean, history should teach something. Am I optimistic? Not so much. Um, I think we'll, the best scenario I can imagine is one in which we don't prevent some horrific mistakes, but we make small mistakes that are sufficiently telling to make sure that we avoid it. So that, say, the, the sacrifice, the, the pain, the, the, the horrible suffering will be minimal for the lesson to come back and say, we should have never done this, forget about it, no, let's, let's move elsewhere. But is there a scenario in which we commit some horrible crimes to humanity, uh, inflicting onto ourselves you know, pains of, of no, no potential description? Oh yeah, definitely. The technology is immensely powerful. We've been there just uh, yesterday with nuclear power. I mean, and it's still there. I mean, we could still destroy this, this planet many times over, thanks to the stupidity that we have put into atomic bombs. You think we're not going to do that with artificial intelligence, for example? I have little no, hope. Well, what I hope is that in the same way as we used the atomic bomb only twice, thank you Americans for dropping two bombs on two cities of civilians, and we never done it bef no, before or after, well, likewise, we will not have an atomic bomb no, on AI and then think twice. We seem to be learning the hard way. No. Everybody says, oh, don't do it, don't do it, boom. Something, this disaster happens, and then we change course of action. Let's hope this is not going to happen with AI. Assuming that machines will get increasingly intelligent and autonomous, what is the essence that differentiates humans from machines? Yeah, I know there's a lot of talking about this uh, pseudo-intelligence that we are uh, creating. I mean, most of it is science fiction. A lot of it is just advertisement or public relations. and. Uh, either because people want to sell something or because they want to you know, get money to uh, do something. Truth is that uh, the, the kind of things that we have around uh, and that we can build, and for the foreseeable future, I mean, insofar as we know, um, they're very stupid. I mean, they need to look at uh, you know, a million cats to say cat. Well, that's not impressive, is it? I mean, not in terms of intelligence. It's extraordinary in terms of technology. Now, it's almost magic when it comes to technology. But if you were to you know, have a kid that has to take you know, a, a thousand pictures of a cat before saying cat, you will be really, really, really worried. So um, I think we should calm down and lower the you know, volume when it comes to all the rhetoric about intelligence. What it is true is that we have amazing technologies. They can do almost anything we want instead of us, better than us, for us. So I'm not saying that there's a limit somewhere, oh no, what computers cannot do. I'm not quite sure there's anything that a computer in principle cannot do. Because you know, we have a million ways of uh, uh, finding alternative ways that require no intelligence. So can a computer clean the house? Of course. Can uh, no, no, work as a uh, fire security center? On and on and on. There will be cost, there will be risks, cost as in financial cost, risks, in terms of no, 
do we want to delegate and stuff. So there will be governance and, and social issues. But in terms of feasibility, that's perfectly fine. The distinction that people seem to be missing is that just because you can achieve the same result, it doesn't mean that the process that leads from here to there is the same. If you come to my house and you see, say, clean dishes on, on the table in, in my kitchen, and I ask you, can you guess who cleaned the dishes, the dishwasher or me? You can't tell, hopefully. <laughs> uh, you cannot reverse engineer from the clean dishes who did what. Just because you cannot, the conclusion saying, oh, then the machine is like the channel. No, they're completely two different processes. There's no comparison between the way I do the dishes and the machine does the dishes. Different processes, same result. It doesn't mean that it's the same agency. It doesn't mean it's the same process. That's what we're really seeing today. So when, uh, say, Google, for example, adopted some of the algorithms developed by uh, uh, DeepMind to play Go and chess, etc., to optimize the consumption of um, electricity uh, in their uh, warehouses. And I think they cut something like 20, 30% of their consumption. It was a massive, not saving, wonderful. Intelligence, well, shall we say, of the engineers and the humans who actually developed the, the product, adapted, adopted. Yeah. The thing, well, the thing is, 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 is patterns matching stuff. So I'm not particularly worried about that corner of AI. What I'm concerned about is that because they're so powerful, they will be in the hands of humans who may misuse them very easily. And that is going to happen more and more regularly because this stuff is coming out of the labs. So AI will be you know, in the streets in no time. I will have something powerful in my you know, smartphone saying, can you please find a solution to this, da, 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 da. Suppose I start delegating to that particular AI solution in terms of uh, investing you know, those, say, a thousand dollars that I have in my bank and a mess happens, who's responsible? The silly Luciano actually delegated machines to do something with their money. So back to the point, I wouldn't be worried about the uh, I in intelligence. I think I would be more uh, focusing on the A in AI, which to me means autonomy. Autonomous agency able to perform tasks like us, better than us, instead of us, for us, etc. And what we want to do with that. That is on tab we need to know much better what we want to use it for. Especially since much of our digital environment today belongs to the frightful five, as they call them, Google and Facebook and co. Um, it seems like you would ask for more governments, especially in that realm of today's private companies and capitalistic or motivated companies. Yes, so the point here is, seems to me, that um, we can have a, a two-progs approach to governance. There's some, something called self-regulation. We can ask these companies to self-regulate themselves much more because of the impact they have, because of the immense forces they can unleash, because of the widespread you know, uh, implications of their operations from you know, any corner of the world. That is not an alternative to, it is not either or with regulation itself. In fact, some self-regulation can work better, for example, with very innovative products where legislation is not yet available, or when, when it comes to doing more than just what the, the law requires. But legislation will be required, and increasingly so. So I like to see these two sort of 
approaches converging to make sure that these enormous powerful agents, you know, these companies, do the right thing. Now, depending on company, you know, putting them in the same basket um, is, is complicated because uh, there are also some old companies, not uh, IBM, Microsoft, for example, who have been around for a while, Apple. And so the whole digital world includes, so to speak, old money, uh, you know, uh, decades-old companies, and very young ones, startups, uh, and multinational. Depending on the company in question, self-regulation may work better, regulation may work better, a combination of the two, uh, and social pressure, I mean, a market. That's perhaps, if I may add, just one element to, to the debate, where we should do a much, much better job than we're doing at the moment. So, if you take of the forces that can shape the actions of these agents, self-regulation regulations are two, but the other one is competition, and we don't have enough. That is a failure of our capitalist sort of uh, world as we speak, because the capitalist system that we have at the moment was built on competition from a past century, and it doesn't work now. Antitrust, competition, they're not working, and that's why we have de facto monopolies. When a company becomes a monopoly, it's inevitable they start dominating you know, price-wise in terms of you know, services and so on. Honestly, who wouldn't? No, you, you have the game in town, you can you know, do whatever you want. Competition keeps companies honest, in the same way as voting keeps politicians honest. So voting, yes. Can I you know, walk away? No. I need to be able to walk away. I can't have only one restaurant in town, because if there's only one restaurant in town, he can make whatever he wants. That's the only way I can eat. That's not good enough. So I hope that in the future, either because we break them down, unlikely, because something else will happen in terms of regulations, because competitors will emerge, whatever it is, but there will be competition together with self-regulation and regulation. At that point, I become a little bit more optimistic. <laughs> but do you think that this is possible. I mean, if you look how these companies lobby in politics, that they will get like ripped apart into different parts. It's not really a thing that I could imagine. And then secondly, I mean, there is competition, but it gets bought by one of those five yeah. companies. Do you really feel like there is a future where, where it could be that much competition that it works again? So I think that um, the, the legal systems that we have in, say, decent Western democracies um, can do that. I mean, it, they, the power is there. The question is whether there's the political will. That's a different story. As you said, you know, there's lobbying uh, and there's uh, revolving doors. I mean, people in, in politics work for the companies. The companies then work into the Well, then, we, we, basically, we're talking to the same kind of unit, so to speak. So will there be political will? Well, that is something that comes with social pressure. So until the moment where we, no, no, the population no, says, well, that's enough, I mean, I'm not happy with this, no, can we just change? Then the politics changes, then the political will is enacted, then the law is enacted, and boom, all of a sudden, maybe you break down a whole company saying, look, this company cannot own this and this and that service. Uh, is that a, you know, a website or a communication, you know, instant messaging, or you know, um, a photography so, uh, handling, no, just to mention someone. So um, because of all those steps, I'm not terribly optimistic because um, you know, these, these companies, they are doing all they can to make sure that they don't annoy people too much. 
And by not annoying people means that there's not enough pressure. I mean, who's going to go in the streets and say, oh, enough is enough. We've got other problems. So even if you look at, say, for example, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, I mean, I invite people now listening to us today, so just check what happens to their stock exchange evaluation. They're back where they were. Absolutely. They bounce back 100% and more. So you have a curve, it goes down and back again, up again. At some point, Facebook was losing something like 100 billion dollars. That, that's, that's a fortune. I mean, something that you, I don't even know how to write down. It's totally back in business. Meaning that not even a Cambridge Analytica scandal can change the course of that company. And when it comes to competition, we should remember that when they competed with each other, their stronghold is so powerful that not even one of them can compete with the other. I mean, Google, with Google Plus, failed to compete with Facebook. Microsoft with Bing failed to compete with the search engine that is Google. And I want to see now whether you know, Netflix and uh, Apple, who we will, will actually Apple be able to win against Netflix? Because there could be another case of no competition. I mean, today there is a Netflix, the Netflix, end of the story. There's a difference because we pay for the system and therefore we are customers, we're not users. A distinction that sometimes people forget is crucial. Customers have rights, users don't. Okay? Users have presence. If you don't like it, you throw it away. It's like, no, a scarf from your grandma. If you don't like it, you don't go to the court. Okay? You just don't use it. Uh, but that's another story. So I think that that is where we should be looking more carefully. In Europe, we could do more. Let me be, and I close it here. No, science fiction for a moment, since we mentioned it. Imagine. I repeat, no, for anyone who's listening, this is science fiction. Don't get excited. That in Europe... At the European Council, even, not even the European Union, so European Council, the wider sort of, we decide to put a cap on online advertisement. Amazing. I bet companies, the analog companies, will be delighted. Because if you sell a fridge, and I sell a fridge, and we're both on a particular website that sells fridges, I had to advertise, you had to advertise, it's a war between the two of us. The only one who is winning is the website, or no, the advertising agency. If I can't spend more than $10, once I reach that, you spend $10, spend $10, that's it. There is no conflict between the two of us. We just reach a, uh, a maximum. Anything else will go into something else, maybe in lowering the price of the fridge, whatever it is. But I think that, uh, again, science fiction for anyone who's listening, <laughs> but if we could actually kill the advertising industry, this would be a better world. Very interesting take. Yep. Yeah. Strange idea. <laughs> I like this realistic idea and not science fiction story. Yeah, it's super cool. So um, I'd like to go a bit on a bit back. So morally wise, what moral stand should intelligent machines, robots, have in our society? Yeah, yeah well, when we talk about the ethics of AI, robotics, or all this uh, sort of more or less pseudo-intelligent mechanism that we have around. Uh, normally, I, I like to make a, a clear distinction uh, between the minimum requirement that should be there by design and something that is what we would call ethical thinking. So, I think in terms of um, um, the requirements uh, or standards of design. If you uh, take, say, uh, a food mixer, a good design for a food mixer is such that if you don't you know, lock it and close it, it won't start. Well, because otherwise, the mess. <laughs> and if you open it, it should stop because you shouldn't be able to put a finger in it. Now, 
otherwise you know, that's a different kind of mess it's a horror movie but that is that ethical you won't say yeah well it's, it's a good thing I mean I like to have my food processing machine you no know, safe my microwave safe etc so when it comes to safety uh, airbag kind of style yeah I like to see that you no know, those standards implemented in robotics in AI absolutely that doesn't mean teaching machines ethics. It's just simply, you know, using standard, classic, you know, or good design procedure to make sure that some safety you know, uh, measures are in place, risks are not taken pointlessly. It's the same thing that we have with electricity. You know, you shouldn't be able to kill yourself by putting your fingers into the socket. You know, some people click. So those are simply design things that are inflexible. There's no decision making, there's no on the one end or the other, there's no reflection, there's no uh, reason to take into account different values or pro and contra or some kind of trade-off and circumstances. No, no. you just don't want to kill yourself, you don't want to no, put the finger in the wrong not with blades running. And so. The same with robotics, no, say in industrial context for example, uh, or the same with etc. The same with driverless cars. I mean, all that debate about them, left and right, seriously, that's a design issue. Big red button, boom, stop. That's it. That's all it takes. I mean, the whole debate is again one more of those bubble. But that doesn't mean teaching machines to be ethical. I mean, anyone who has even remotely opened one book of ethics knows that that is a matter of a difficult elaboration of often controversial issues and there's always a trade-off between uh, different perspectives what benefits for whom how far you want to go how much you want to implement something that sort of um, limits the freedom of other people often we, we ourselves don't even know how to find the right solution and we are sort of tentative and well in that context we can't teach anything because we don't even know ourselves how to do it so I hear a lot about all oh, machines that uh, would be ethical by you not know, learning. Uh, it's again, once again, moving to a science fiction scenario, we're wasting our time. Meanwhile, Rome is burning. I mean, meanwhile, we really have serious issues out there. So anyone who has been speculating about you know, the, the trolley problem or the robot going rogue and becoming some kind of Terminator, uh, uh, it was funny and entertaining until recently. Now it's irresponsible because we really have pressing issues and you know playing sort of science fiction scenarios it i, I, don't, I don't have much respect for that anymore uh, i think it's it is it's disrespectful towards what the problem the problems we have and it, sometimes i wonder whether there's more than just a, a dangerous distracting entertainment is anyone really planning to make sure that we don't see what's going on because i'm worried about the trolley problem so let's make sure that we stay on problems the real ones what is the real problem? Many. Uh, we got many. Um, so some of the... Th it's difficult to list all of them, but let me just give you like a menu. Not that I want to you know, end on a depressing note in this conversation, but say, um, how far do we want to delegate machines to do things instead of us? No? It's perfectly possible. Actually, if you check on YouTube, it, it might be still there. Uh, there's a video by the... Uh, South uh, Korean army and uh, it recounts the story of when they order uh, the, 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 the construction of um, a defense system to be deployed at the border 
it's a long time ago. And the company in question was, of course, Samsung. And Samsung, uh, the first delivery by Samsung was of this defense system, essentially you not know, big gun, machine guns, you know, sort of uh, target identification, shoot on target, completely 100% autonomous. No one involved, just deploy. The general said, well, maybe we want to have a human in the loop, because this is a little bit, no, you know that South Korea, North Korea is a very difficult border, peace never quite formalized entirely, you know, people go there to look and visit. It's insane. I mean, who in his right mind wants to have a 100% autonomous system delegated entirely to a machine? Doable? Yes. Off the shelf, of course. Uh, it's like a, like a dishwasher. Uh, but we shouldn't do it. So problem number one delegation. How far do we want to keep the decision to decide? That's what I mean by saying, okay, well, maybe I let this thing go and run and do it. But is there a red button somewhere where I said, boom, enough is enough, stop it. So that's the first, to me, one of the first things. And I'm not talking in terms of more or less important, but say, like a menu. The other one is, um, maybe it's a bit too long for us for today, but one way in which this transformation of, of the world into increasingly a digital machine-friendly world is, is happening is by transforming difficult tasks into complex tasks. So uh, it's very difficult, for example, to uh, make up a, a bed. You know, uh, even a simple bed, uh, it takes a human. Uh, a robot cannot do it, unless you change the bed. If you transform the bed into something that is entirely automatic, well then you live in a bed that is a robot as a robot, and then the red can make itself available. Now, just, just again, YouTube stuff. Cooking. Well, you can't share you know, a, a kitchen with a robot because you know, that knife may actually end up in the wrong way. So you build a space for the robot. You stay outside. Well, that's doable. Again, YouTube stuff. So all this shows that we are shaping the world around the machines to make them work. Fine, great, intelligent, absolutely brilliant. That's, by the way, where driverless cars will be successful, wherever you can shape the world around the driverless cars. Airport, for example, their bus will be, no, a driverless bus because it completely, no, embedded within an environment that you shape to the last element. Naples, I'm not quite sure. No, no, not driverless cars there where people don't even respect the red lights. So back to us, shaping, no, in terms of problems, shaping the world to make sure the machines work successfully means sometimes forgetting that humans live there. So if you shape the world to, in such a way that it's machine friendly, and you forget that there are citizens, customers, patients in the hospital, uh, children in school, um, teachers, uh, workers, and so on, well, all of a sudden that place is no longer for us. If we do this in an urban environment, well, that would be very expensive because we will do it regret it and undo it. So problem number two, shaping the world. So how much do we want to delegate? How much do we want to shape the world so that it fits, retrofits our machines? We can keep going, but these two are big enough um, to make sure that always remembering that we're going to be the users, we're going to be at the center of all this. And two, we want to be able to change our minds. Uh, now, if we can keep this, just these two problems already in sight, that's infinitely more serious than any you know, sort of Terminator coming, singularity. That is a distraction. All right, so we talked a lot about this dystopian futures that hopefully will not happen. 
what would be your personal future utopia? Yeah. If you want to think positively about what could happen, uh, I think this is something that goes back to really, you know, uh, the, the history of humanity. I mean, so there, there are two things that we don't want to do normally. We don't want to work and we don't want to think. Well, that's it. We want to be on a beach with a Coke, okay? <laughs> normally. Or to be less funny. I mean, so we want to engage, entertain, um, do something meaningful or maybe something very lazy but certainly not work eight hours, uh, you know, sort of putting you know, A and B together you know, for some piece of technology and so on, uh, and certainly not uh, sort of wasting our brain uh, after silly problems. like uh, So that's where, in general, digital technology could help us a lot, doing something that is more meaningful, that is more sort of worth the most amazing thing that is in this universe, which is a human brain. I mean, the universe has not created anything like this. Uh, whatever you think, no. God or nature, I, I don't mind, but it is extraordinary. And to think that there is a human being at the moment required, every moment of which we've been having this conversation, that for every car in the world has to pick up the pump, stick it in, in the car, fill the car and put it back because we didn't think about making that automatic. Really, like a human brain as an interface between a petrol pump in a car. Isn't it a waste of like the most amazing thing ever generated by this universe? And that's what we're doing. I mean, oh, scanning beans at a supermarket. Do we really need a human being there? So to me, it's being at the service of what we do best as this special glitch in the universe. I mean, you think that that's not a glitch and is a plant? Well, that's fine by me. To me, it's a bit of a uh, you know, beautiful glitch that uh, is the human in this particular universe of ours. How do we make sure that that glitch has a good life, a decent life, a fulfilling life? That's what technology is for. So insofar as we can do that, that's fantastic. Insofar as we use technology to use other human beings you know, for the wrong reasons, that's what Kant you know, would not recommend, never use humans as means to an end, uh, then we're doing the wrong thing. Then, then we are misusing a very powerful technology, shame on us. Some people will take a lot of advantage, but most of us will be, shall we say, enslaved by the technology. That should not happen. I think that so far we have done um, a decent slash poor job in taking advantage of the technology we have developed. We have much more that we could do, um, as I said, in terms of making life more enjoyable, uh, more meaningful. I'm not sure we'll get there, but you asked me for a bit of a utopian thinking, and that's what it is. One last thing. Is there one piece of knowledge or advice that you would like to share with our listeners? Because we have so many pressing issues at the moment, environmental, social, there's an immense temptation to go solo, to do something yourself. So, Oh, I need to do something. So I can collect cans. I can, I can not print this email. Uh, I can walk to to, to work, uh, um, and so on. I cannot fly tomorrow. I can take the train. So my recommendation would be, get together. What we're lacking profoundly today is coordination. We have a million tiny drops of water that don't make a river. We need a river. The drops of water they will not make a difference. We will not change the world by being individual. I've done my little bit. I can sleep at night. Do not sleep at night. If you are a drop of water, 
not joining in an ocean of movement. If you do that, maybe your conscience will be okay. But trust me, the world would not have been changed. The analogy here is like the car down, down the road is not working and we need to push. If I go and push, it's useless. I might go back and say, oh, I did my bit. No, you didn't. You just sleep better at night. We need to get coordinated. So my only, no, one advice, get together. Because then we can make a difference. By individually, never. And that's the last turn. Uh, no, we, we can end with the beginning of the American Constitution. We the people. He didn't say, Mary, John, Peter, Loza. We the people. Thank you very much. Very Thank insightful. you. Thanks.